bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. This is God's word. You may be seated. Good morning. Before we delve into God's Word, let's go to our Heavenly Father in prayer. Our Father in Heaven, we are thankful for all that you have revealed to us and you've given to us. Father, thank you for your Son who has given us what we do not deserve. Thank you for your promises and for life. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word in guiding us and teaching us how to live before you, to worship you, to walk in your ways. And Father, we pray that we truly might have eyes that see and ears that hear so that you can shape us and mold us. We pray that we will always have hearts that will be soft and moldable before your word, that you may make us into the people that you would have us be, that we can be the tools and the instruments that you want to use in this world for your purposes. And Father, we pray that you'll be glorified, that you'll receive the glory and the honor that you deserve. Father, thank you for today and for this time that we can gather and remember and praise and study again your word. It's in your son's name that we pray. Amen. One of my friends, from the time we lived in San Jose, California, was Don Barnes. And on several occasions, Don Barnes shared with me some stories about a game called the Boy Scout game. Now, participants would follow a series of directional instructions. Um, go so far at this direction and, and then turn and go so far in this direction. And then at the end of all of these directional instructions, they were to record what they found. Now these games could be made to accommodate the novices, the beginners, using a compass, as well as those who are more advanced participants. And obviously, if a person made a very small air of degree. The further the person walked along that line, the further they would begin to move away from where they should be. But what excited Don most was the difference between magnetic north and true north. 
The geographic North Pole is about 500 miles away from the magnetic North Pole. So when you hold a compass, it's pointing, of course, to magnetic north, not true geographic north. And Don was excited to try to explain and to help people to understand how they could use a compass in order to determine where true north lies. So just how significant is that difference between true north and magnetic north? Well, if you're 10,000 miles away from the North Pole, and you want to walk toward it, and you follow a compass um, on what it says is north, from 10,000 miles away, the difference between true north and magnetic north is going to be very small amounts, and you're going to be walking pretty much in the right direction. But as you get closer, for example, if you're in Scotland, and you want to go to the true north pole, not the magnetic north pole, and you use a compass, and you begin walking along that line, well now, the distance is much greater, and the air will be much stronger. Navigating geography accurately requires some good tools, as well as the knowledge how to use them. So how do we navigate life? How do we go about making decisions? When it comes to the things that matter most, what guides our compass on how we're navigating all of the different questions? If we were to take our cue from sitcoms and dramas and reality TV, do we find people in those scenarios using a compass to guide their decisions, a compass that is based on scripture? No. No, what we typically find in that model is that much of the time we witness human beings relying on human thinking and human ideas to shape the path forward. To the casual observer, this might even seem like a good idea. After all, look at all of the success that human understanding and technical insight has achieved. Look at where we are today based on what humans have understood in human thinking. The very air that, that we breathe seems to be filled with a monument to the successes of human thinking and understanding and discovery. So let's take this a step further. How does a congregation move forward? What sources or forces should dominate the church? What should guide the compass? Within the opening chapters of 1 Corinthians, Paul utilizes two very powerful principles to help a church find its path. And not unsurprisingly, these principles these same principles that he's going to give to the church are also helpful for disciples as we live out our lives before the Lord. The first principle involved teaching the church at Corinth that in order to chart a reliable path forward, they should not fixate upon the inconsequential. Paul realized the Corinthian church had become fixated upon something that was inconsequential. 
namely, different personalities. I'm a Paul. I'm a Paulus. But what is really important is, is the person who presents the message important, or is it the message that's important? In a moment, we're going to dig into Paul's message about human personalities and human thinking. But let's apply this general principle, this principle of not fixating upon the inconsequential, to some other contexts. When I joined the mission team in Brazil, the congregation and the leadership there had already determined that the practice would be uh, to meet once on a Sunday, and it was determined that this would be the best way to reach people in that um, culture. Now, we, after we'd been there several years, the question, the topic came up of moving that worship service that we had in the morning to the afternoon, because it was thought that perhaps in the afternoon we could um, better reach out to that culture. Now, I'm speaking to you as those who know Scripture. We know that Christians have always met on the first day of the week. This is the day on which the Lord overcame the grave and death. It's the Lord's day. It's a day when we gather to worship and to remember his death. The day in which he conquered death. But is there anything within scripture that determines the specific hour that the church ought to be meeting? No. We have parameters of what we should be doing. A theology, if you will, about worship. But we have freedom within those parameters. And yet, some among the Brazilian congregation viewed the idea of shifting the worship time to the afternoon as a matter of such critical importance that it appeared to shake their very foundations. Don't fixate upon the inconsequential. I know of a congregation where the decision was made to buy new carpet. And some ladies with wonderful intentions offered their services in color selection. Do you know where this is going? <laughs> None of the choices put forward were ridiculous. They were all good choices, but different colors. And nevertheless, tension arose over which color would be chosen for the carpet. And then there were other suggestions that came along with this. Well, um, you know, my... My father is an elder. My, my husband is a deacon. Um, I work in a field where color selection is, is part of the work. In 1 Corinthians chapters 1 to 4, Paul reminds us to not fixate upon the inconsequential. And while general principle is, is helpful, there is value for us in digging into the specifics that Paul is going to address in 1 Corinthians chapters 1 to 4. As a reminder how a church and as disciples of Jesus, we too might place too much value on something that is inconsequential. Remember what's happened. The gospel has been planted in Corinth. This is an intellectual center. It rivals that of Athens. If you will, this is Harvard versus Yale. And they are both out to outdo the other. In that environment where ideas from around the world are coming to these two seaports. And in that Roman Empire, these ideas are going to come together and they're going to clash. And they're going to compete in the marketplace. 
It's in that environment that the story of Christ crucified is proclaimed. It rung out. And people responded to it. And the church took root. But that church, like the church throughout history, was growing in soil dominated by human culture and human thinking. And in their case, there was confidence in that human wisdom. Confidence in, in understanding and personalities. And it led people to polarize around their favorite person. And so Paul will write, there are quarrels among you. Now, I mean this, that each of you is saying, I'm with Paul, or I'm with Paulus, or I'm with Cephas, or I'm with Christ. And how Paul is going to respond to their situation might shock us. What Paul wrote might be unsettling. To use the imagery of a compass, Paul knew that if the Christians are going to find true north, if they were going, that church at Corinth was going to plow in the direction it needed to go, if disciples are going to possess a reliable compass to guide them how to live as God's people, one principle that we must understand is that humans, along with their wisdom and pride, lead nowhere. It's inconsequential. Where is the wise man, he wrote. Where is the scholar? Where is the philosopher of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? Surprising words. Very surprising words to say in Corinth. Very surprising words to write in a Corinth or an Athens. Wait a minute, Paul. How can you say the wisdom of the world is foolish? Technology works. Are you opposed to, to education and to, to higher learning and to all the insights that people have gained? Not at all. If we will continue to read in the context, it becomes clear that Paul's questions are centered upon asking whether a technical expert or a philosopher or whether human reasoning can really inform us about what ultimately matters for our lives and how we live. And so, he writes, For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not know him. God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. Human wisdom, Paul says, does not lead a person to know God. But Paul elsewhere writes that with what humans can understand with their mind, we can learn about God. You know, if we briefly cast our eyes toward Romans chapter 1, we'll remember that Paul insists that with human reasoning and looking at this world that God has made, it should cause us to conclude that there is a God. So human wisdom and insight can tell us there is a God, but Paul says it can't lead us to know God. But what can we discover about God using human reasoning, you see, is less than what we need. And this is his point in 1 Corinthians 1, 20 and 21. Can the greatest of human minds, equipped only with science and philosophy, discover that we must rely upon Jesus, who died upon a cross, in order to have life with God? Can the greatest thinkers in psychology or biological research, using everything that human sight insight affords us determine that 
God has planned before the creation of the world to provide salvation through Jesus Christ? Can any field of, of human knowledge reliably guide us in all the ways on how we ought to live before a creator who has made us? In these areas which are most important to our lives, if we depend on human reasoning, we would be relying upon a broken compass that cannot guide us to God. And so repeatedly, throughout what we call chapters 1 through 4 in 1 Corinthians, Paul is going to work to undermine human confidence in human perspectives because in spiritual matters, they are inconsequential. Rapid fire. Look at what he writes. He's going to say human wisdom is futile. He says Christ sent me. He sent me to preach the gospel and not with human wisdom so that the cross of Christ would not become useless. Um, God often works contrary to human reasoning. God chose what the world thinks foolish to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. You see, God works in ways that is contrary to how humans think what is best. If you're going to build a world empire, a kingdom spanning the globe, where do you start? How do you go about this? Well, you want to be sure that you get all the influential and powerful people, the movers and shakers of society, in your corner. Not God. Look what Paul wrote as he's helping them think about these things. Think about the circumstances of your call, brothers. Not many were wise by human standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were born to a privileged position. Where is a king's son born? It's in a palace. And it's got all of the, the servants and the best possible support and the help and the best education. And on and on it goes. Where is the son of the king of kings born? People don't even have room for him. He's born where the animals are at. God works in ways that are contrary to human thinking. Paul's message to the church is don't be enamored with the latest human ideas that sound good to you. What God is doing can be contrary to your reasoning. And so Paul continues to hammer on these ideas. Paul's message, he says, was not forged with human wisdom. When I came to you, brothers, I did not come with superior eloquence or wisdom as I proclaim to you the testimony about God. And so here Paul is describing, and he's, he's saying, what I announced to you, the, the message of God... That was not a message that's wrapped up in, in great rhetoric to impress. The content did not come from human wisdom. Paul's going to say, and he'll write elsewhere, when I proclaim to you God's message, that is simply what it is, the message of God. At best, you see, humans are servants of God. What is Paul? What is Paul? Servants through whom you came to believe. And Paul will, will go on and explain in chapter 3 of 1 Corinthians, yes, you heard the message from me. I planted the seed. Apollos came along. He caught some more and he added that water. But your focus is misplaced if you gravitate to our personalities. The messenger at best is just a servant conveying God's message. So neither the one who plants counts for anything, nor the one who waters. You see, don't exalt or polarize around the messenger. He will hammer on this idea further. Humans do not create the standard. 
According to the grace of God given to me, he wrote, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation. But someone else builds on it, and each one must be careful how he builds, for no one can lay any foundation other than what is being laid, which is Jesus Christ. If anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, or straw, each builder's work will be plainly seen. For the day will make it clear, because it will be revealed with fire, and the fire will test the quality of each man's work. What is Paul writing about here? What is he talking about? Well, to summarize this, he is, he is saying, let me tell, tell, talk to you about ministry. There's a foundation for ministry that's been laid. It's Jesus Christ. Now, on that foundation, you have ministry building up. <coughs> and sometimes the quality of that ministry is like gold. It is extremely valuable. Sometimes the quality of it is like wood, hay, straw, or stubble. And we didn't read it, but he goes on to say, and sometimes the worker destroys the people of God. God's temple. And what he is saying is that God is going to reveal. He will judge the quality of what has been done. You see, it's not humans who create the standard. The person presenting the gold could say, this is gold. The person presenting hay, straw, didn't kill anyone, but it didn't help, could say, this is gold. The person who actually destroyed the people of God could say, this is gold. But what the humans claim is nothing. In the end, God determines. At the same time that Paul worked so hard to help the Christians at Corinth realign and rethink their compasses about a false north that is inconsequential, Paul simultaneously is going to tune their guidance system toward true north, toward knowing what could reliably guide them forward. Paul taught them to center upon the significant. That's the principle that we see him doing. And whether then or today, for disciples or for the Lord's church, to know how to navigate among the shoals of inconsequential distractions and to be able to identify what is inconsequential, we need to be centered upon what is most important. And truly, in the first four chapters of 1 Corinthians, Paul is going to emphasize that the Christian's focus needs to be riveted upon God. And so repeatedly, he is going to exalt God. As he's brought humanity down, he's lifted God higher and higher and higher. Notice how he goes about this. As he helps their compasses focus on true north, God. God's power, he says, is found in the preaching about Christ crucified. For the message of about the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. God was pleased, he writes, by the foolishness of preaching to save those who believe. You see, on a cross, decades before Paul wrote this, God was at work, and Christ died. He died on the cross and gave his life and his blood that others might live. 
And through his death, God was able to remain just while promising that he would forgive us of our sins and claim us as his people. People who could walk in fellowship with him as those who have been cleansed and made holy and blameless before him. And when the story of Christ and what God has done through Christ on that cross is proclaimed, God again is at work calling people to respond to his son in order that they too may have eternal life. That, he, that they too may be shaped into the people that he wants them to be and to live the lives that he desires for them who love him and who love others as themselves. And as people respond to Christ crucified, acknowledging him, Christ, and relying upon him in, with their baptism, God makes good on his promises, granting his promises to that individual. For the message about the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. God was pleased by the foolishness of preaching to save those who believe. You see, also, it's God who reveals wisdom, Paul says. We speak the wisdom of God, hidden in a mystery, that God determined for our glory before time began. In chapter 2 of 1 Corinthians, Paul devotes a lot of ink to help the Christian understand that not only does wisdom exist, but it comes from God. It doesn't come from humanity. And that message of wisdom, Paul says, has been revealed to his people. But it's also God who assigns the tasks and the roles that people have. What is Paul? Paul. What is Apollos? Paul questions. And what is Paul, really? Servants through whom you came to believe, and each of us in the ministry the Lord assigned to us. Yes, we're, we're just servants. And we have these roles because God has given us these roles. If you look at the body of Christ from its inception to today, you will find people serving in a variety of functions. They have been apostles. There have been prophets. There have been teachers. There have been elders. And as Paul would write or say to the, to the elders um, that were gathered before him that had come from Ephesus, that it was the Holy Spirit who had made them elders. And here Paul is affirming that the different roles he and Apollos were playing out were simply those tasks that the Lord had assigned to each one. It's not about the people. It's about the Lord. And it is God, he says, that makes the church grow. I planted. Apollos watered. But God caused it to grow. You know, sometimes churches, uh, preachers, um, others fall into the trap of crediting kingdom growth to a person. God can use people in very powerful ways in different situations and scenarios. But it's God who provides the growth. God provides the standard for understanding what is good. As we just read a moment ago, if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, or straw, each builder's work will be plainly seen. Why? For the day will make it clear because it will be revealed by fire. Here's the judgment of God on the ministry that was done. And the fire will test the quality of each one's work. It is the Lord who determines what is valuable and what is not. Now, if we humans, we might be enamored with a particular perspective, a particular ministry, a particular way of thinking about spiritual matters. But God determines whether or not something was in fact beneficial. 
or whether it was meaningless, or, heaven forbid, even destructive. When a, when a church is centered upon God for its guidance, then inconsequential matters like human personalities, or whether there are three songs or eight songs before the sermon, or what the color of the carpets might be or will be, or whether there are pews or chairs, or, or whether in a coastal Brazilian city the church is going to meet on Sunday morning or Sunday afternoon, these things are not anxiety-producing nor cause for any concern because the church knows where true north is. It's centered on what is significant, and that is God. And there's no need to have any fear about the present or the future. Why? Because the individual in the congregation is securely founded on the God who creates. The God who can raise the dead. The God who can exalt the lowly and humble the prideful. And it is this God who provides for his people with their security, their guidance, and their hope. So how does someone center his or her compass upon God? True north, and not upon humanity. Do we go out into the dark night and stare at the starry sky? Do we go into a dark place and sit and listen for a quiet voice? Starting in chapter 4, 1 Corinthians Paul offers some fine-tuning aspects for our guidance system. And while it can be easy to claim to follow God, it seems that Paul can anticipate that our humanness and our thinkings can easily get in the way. So quickly then, here's some help in fine-tuning how to navigate in following the Lord, whether it be at the discipleship level or the congregational level. The first thing that Paul's going to say in chapter 4 is regard the messenger as a steward. A person should think about us this way, he writes, as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. You see, a steward is responsible for someone else. A steward is enacting the will of someone else, not their will. So you don't exalt the messenger onto a pedestal, regardless whether that messenger is famous or not. If he's a faithful messenger, he is simply discharging his duty of passing along God's word. God is the source, God is the focus, and must remain so. And accordingly, since the messenger is merely a steward of God's word, the final word on any matter rests not with the human, but with God. A second thing that he will do in, in fine-tuning this is to say, realize our thinking does not determine good and bad. He said, Paul will give a personal example. As an apostle, he says, my conscience is clear. But that does not make me innocent. It is the Lord who judges me. Therefore, judge nothing before the point of time. Wait till the Lord comes. Paul is going to say, in my ministry, it's gold, as far as I can tell. But even the apostle is going to say, that does not mean it is. It's the Lord who determines it. What does it mean to not judge? Because that's, that's where he's going with the church. He gives himself as an example. 
and saying, I'm not even judging myself. But then he tells the church, don't judge. What does that mean? I expect that when most people hear the phrase, don't judge, what most people hear inside their head is don't condemn. In fact, it seems that the word judging is most frequently acquainted with condemning. That's part of it. However, that's only half of what it means to judge. The judge both condemns and acquits. The judge both reproves and affirms. Paul is instructing the church not to sit in God's judgment seat. They're not to make determinations about what is wrong and what is right. God's word has been revealed. It reveals the path of what's good. It reveals what's proper and true as well as what's evil. They're not to make those determinations. And when as disciples we apply that word that God has revealed about good and right to the, wor to the world or to ourselves and our lives, we're not being the judges. God has already determined that. It sat in his judgment seat and said this is good or that's wrong. And we can apply that. And we're not the, being the judges. This don't judge is not teaching a fickle I don't know. That's not the message. We can grasp what Paul is trying to communicate to the church here by remembering the context. Paul is dealing with a church that is polarized around different human personalities that's causing division. Now in such a scenario, what happens where friendships are strong and strong feelings get caught up in polarizing elements, it can be easy to align oneself and to begin to judge and condemn, to affirm yours and condemn another. And Paul is saying, you don't judge these things about ministry. I've already told you who judges the ministry. It's the Lord. In chapter 3, Paul's taught that God will judge each one's ministry. So here he's telling the Christian, don't judge. That's God's judgment. In the end, God will judge and separate the valuable from the invaluable and frivolous. So regardless of what we think, whether it be this does not matter, or that's fine, or this is wrong, in those places where God has not revealed... God is the judge, not us. And so Paul aptly continues and he issues a warning to the church to recognize the danger of speculation in order that God's guidance through his word might truly be speaking to us. So he says, do not go beyond what is written. Then you're not going to take pride in one man over against another. When Christians speculate, Christians segregate. When Christians speculate, Christians segregate. But God's word unites God's people. <clears throat> As disciples, each of us determines what compass, how we're going to use that compass, and where our north lies, our guidance system. Within his writings, Paul repeatedly reminds us that his message came from the Lord, not himself. So it's a message that we can rely upon. And what he tells us is that we need to do is we need to focus upon what is significant, not the inconsequential. And, and part of this is going to involve regarding messengers as stewards. Avoid judging and speculation as we seek to follow God's word. God's people must always remember where true north lies. It might be this morning 
It might be that this morning. Someone's compass has not been on true north. And it's been on a path, and perhaps one's own life has been on the throne. Living for me, serving me, doing things my way. Jesus calls us to die to ourselves, to pick up that cross. That's our death. In order to begin to live for him who died for us. He's made everything possible. This morning, there may be prayer concerns. There may be the desire to respond to the, to the wonderful message of Jesus crucified. Whatever it is, it can be made known while we stand and sing. When my way 